Hello my loves and welcome back to my channel. If you are watching this on the Greek City Times YouTube, welcome. We are so glad to have you here. If you are watching this from my personal channel, hello. Um, in today's video, I have the great pleasure of interviewing Dr. Sabine Hazan. Now, Dr. Hazan is a world-renowned gastroenterologist from California, and she is the creator of the world first progena biome. So this is a world first um, research laboratory where they test genetic sequencing and they also test like the gut microbiome. And so Dr. Hazan is a firm believer that disease can only be understood through precision medicine by focusing on the individual and the changes within. Oh my God. So what I learned throughout this whole interview was that she really believes, and that's kind of reiterated by that comment there, that when it comes to treating GI symptoms, one size does not fit all. It does not. So that's what kind of sets her apart from every other GI specialist that I've spoken to so far. Um, so Dr. Hazan really took me through um, topics like irritable bowel syndrome how and how you can't just cure it overnight it kind of takes trial and error and a lot of patience the importance of keeping a food diary which I, I think is pretty cool I've never I've never had a GI doctor tell me to keep a food diary and we briefly touched on how the carnivore diet may not be a cure for your GI problems now I know that I am, I have done the carnivore diet and it, it, it has helped me, but I want to remain open to the possibility that it may not be a cure for everyone. So without further ado, let's get into the in interview. As usual, if you have enjoyed this, give it a big thumbs up and I hope you learned a thing or two. So enjoy guys. So welcome, and I want to thank you very much for coming on. Um, can you tell us a bit about yourself and what you do? So I'm a gastroenterologist, yeah. and um, I've been doing clinical research for pharmaceutical companies for a long time, almost two decades, actually, probably a little wow, bit. Wow, 20 years. Yeah, so I started at University of Florida with mm. doing research, and my first clinical trial was for Crohn's disease with a drug called Remicade. And Remicade, you know, brought on other drugs and other protocols. And over the years, I started doing so many different protocols for so many different conditions because research is research that um, I landed as uh, known in the world of clinical trials as the queen of C. diff, which is a bacteria that people get. From catching it from eating antibiotics and so c diff brought on clinical trials on fecal material microbiome pills. That's right. yep. and so that came into my desk and i started doing uh the first clinical trial on the on the microbes in a capsule and um i started seeing what was the difference between the capsule and what we were doing you know in real life and noticed that there were some differences and definitely the capsule wasn't working as well as the fecal trans, the microbiome transplant. And that's what I'm going to call it because I think people have had enough of fecal transplant here. And so 
it's microbiome transplant. And so when we transplant, um, you know, these microbes, and then we see something changes, right? A person's growing hair, a person's arthritis is improving, their psoriasis is improving, their chronic urinary tract infections, their, um, you know, uh, a patient with metastatic cancer I had, and it helped her prolong her life um, by giving her transplant that sustained her gut and therefore mm -hmm. allowed her to survive or support, you know, chemotherapy. So when all these cases happen and you see something change, you say something's in the microbiome, what are we doing? And so I started sending my stools before and after fecal transplant to different labs and I got different results. And that opened up the whole can of worm, if you want to call it, to me, where I started asking all these questions. Well, first of all, we're in the microbiome space. We're putting, you know, microbes in capsules. We don't know where they're landing. We don't know whether they're landing in the stomach and, and messing up the stomach or the small bowel or the colon. Um, we don't understand the microbiome. We don't understand what we're doing when we're doing microbiome transplant as GI doctors, right? Let alone, what do we do? Because people have asked me, I had a company that does uh, analysis of, of uh, microbes and mm -hmm. analysis of fecal material and said, I don't understand why you don't just put microbes and fecal material in capsules and treat all the autistic children out there. Mm -hmm. said, well, that would be great if we knew what we were doing, but our intent is not to kill, it's to heal and do no harm. And so- The Hippocratic Oath. Hippocratic Oath. That's Absolutely. right. And so that brought on the interest to open up Progenobiome. And so Progenobiome, it stands from progenity, for progena, from yep. your genes, to your biome. Because I think when we look at a human being's disease, it's not only the genetics, it's also the microbiome. Wow, that's incredible. Wow. Okay. So can you tell us a little more about progena biome? Now, um, you mentioned fecal transplants. I know that Professor Thomas Barodi was a big endorser of the transplants. Transplant, and I don't want to, you know, talk too much about, you know, feces, but I really feel as though from what you just said, that it really makes a big difference in like uh, people that have got even uh, cancer, which I find is incredible. Well, and that's the future, right? So we all saw as GI doctors that, that you know, microbiome transplant worked mm. and that it was doing some things, but we also saw that it was doing other things, right? So the that's same right. thing that improves arthritis can cause arthritis, right? Yeah. The same thing that improves cancer in a way could cause cancer. We don't know. So, you know, we were just tapping. And so my goal, because I had all these questions, was to assemble all the doctors around the country. And so I created the Biome Squad That's with right. the interest of saying, hey, we're the Biome Squad. We do microbiome transplant. Let's all talk at a meeting about what we're seeing. Let's discuss our experiences. And let me look at the microbiome before and after transplant to see what changes. Yeah. And so that was really the whole purpose of progenobiome was really what is changing when you have a patient that has Alzheimer's, you do microbiome transplant using his wife's feces, and then he remembers his daughter's date of birth. Wow. What changes, what causes that, right? And I always felt that if you attain a cure and you know what the patient looks like at the baseline, you're going to know what changed in the microbiome. 
So I had those tool samples and I have those tool samples and I started creating an assay that basically told me the story. And it did, it basically told me what happened to my patient, what changed in the microbiome that improved his Crohn's disease, that improved Dr. Barodi's patient's Crohn's disease, mm -hmm. that improved my patient's Alzheimer's. So, and I realized that it was all individual, right? So it's very precise medicine. It's not something that you can just, oh, let me take stools from an MIT student or from a Harvard student and give it to a person in Mexico or a person in, or a person that lives in Oxnard or Ventura where I practice, right? It, it doesn't work that way. It's very precise in my opinion. Some doctors have had amazing results with the biome banks that are selling these products and some doctors don't have amazing results. And somewhere in the middle is precision medicine, right? Somewhere in the middle, you figure out, well, that didn't work and that worked. Where is the truth? And when you find the truth, it's amazing because the truth is really reproducing the data and not only reproducing the data, but showing another doctor that your data is reproduced, right? The whole, and I, I say this with research, all research needs to be valid, verified, and reproducible. If you don't have those three things, if it's not valid, you know, you're doing nothing. If it's not verified by someone else to say, yes, two plus two equals four. I took two cubes and I took another two cubes and they equal four and it's verified. And then I bring on another person, a, a third person and say, can you reproduce that two plus two equals four? Then at that point it becomes legit science and it becomes a science. And, you know, we're entering a world where we can no longer do clinical trials with looking at a placebo versus a control. We have to be precise. We have to understand why did the placebo work and not the drug? Was it because the patient microbiome was different and therefore could not tolerate the drug? And therefore it's not that the drug doesn't work, it's just that it doesn't work for that patient. That and patient. so we have to be better at doing science and medicine. Because over 30, over, you know, so many years, and, and not only me, so many drugs have gone through the FDA and have failed, but have worked amazing. You know, gastroparesis, I remember doing a clinical trial, and the patients were doing amazing, but the drug never made it because some of the placebos were doing amazing too, right? Oh, but for those people who they resolved and mm. cured, something changed in them. And for the people who resolved on placebo, well, something happened as well. So I think we need to understand. So some 15% of the American population has irritable bowel syndrome. Um, and it's twice as prevalent in females as males. Um, I think they're very similar numbers in Australia, but I feel as though personally, it's higher. Um, I, I got irritable bowel syndrome a long time ago. I haven't been haven't really cured it. I've somehow lived my life around it kind of thing. Do you think that a fecal transplant can actually cure or reverse irritable bowel syndrome? Well, there's certainly, you know, a possibility of that, but you have to remember irritable bowel syndrome is such a vast, you know, array, right? So you have people that are deemed irritable bowel syndrome and they have endometriosis. You have people mm -hmm. that have irritable bowel syndrome and they have bacterial overgrowth. 
You have people that are, are irritable bowel syndrome and actually are really Crohn's disease, right? And they're just not diagnosed. Some people, I've had a couple cases over the years deemed irritable bowel syndrome. And actually one of them was an ectopic stomach in the small bowel. Another one was a carcinoid. So, you know, sometimes, you know, irritable bowel syndrome gets put into this array. And I think mm. as women, you know, we tend to, we're sensitive as women, right? Women patients, women in general, we feel, you know, the symptoms. And so that sensitivity, um, you know, gets us tagged as irritable bowel syndrome, you know? Mm. But sometimes there's something more. I cannot tell you how many young ladies I've diagnosed with endometriosis. And that was the problem, not irritable bowel syndrome. It's, you know, or scar tissue behind the bowels. Oh, and so, okay. you know, there's such a difference. Now, of course, there is a percentage of the population that is that true irritable bowel syndrome, but is it irritable bowel syndrome or is it a visceral hyperalgesia, meaning oversensitive gut where the receptors are so sensitive that you're feeling every little thing and therefore you're having the symptoms, right? And then, or is it a bacterial dysbiosis, which is then becomes my world, right? In other words, That's right. there's a group of microbes in the gut that are essentially out of balance and they're just not functioning properly. And so therefore at that point, yes, um, you know, fecal transplant could help those people, but you have to be careful that you're not swapping an irritable bowel syndrome case for an arthritis case, right? irritable bowel syndrome for cancer. And that's a concern with fecal transplant or microbiome transplant is really, you know, fine tuning, you know, the, the, the microbes that you're going to be utilizing because mm. everything in life is risk versus benefits yeah, and everything in life has risks that's and you don't want to swap something that's mild, even though debilitating, but it's mild compared to something that's serious, okay. like an arthritis or a deformity of the arthritis or, you know, you know, the same thing that, and I always tell people, Dr. Colleen Kelly showed two cases of alopecia areata who grew hair after fecal transplant or after microbiome transplant for C, they had C. diff. And, you know, I always say the same thing that grows hair can lose hair. Mm -hmm. The same thing that improves arthritis can cause arthritis. So we have to be careful. We're at the beginning of all this. I see people rushing to England and the Bahamas to Tamon Clinic for fecal transplant, and it's not necessarily the solution. Okay. It's the same thing as, you know, people rushing to have, you know, their uterus removed thinking, well, it's their, it's their fibroid causing the problem. <laughs> and then it's not, it's really a gut problem, a dysbiosis. So you got to analyze everything. And, and I think, you know, a lot of thing with irritable bowel syndrome is we tend to live in a society that's very type A. We drink a lot of coffee. We're on the go. We're anxious. We have to work 20 hours out of 24 or, you know, and then it's difficult. The body does not stop. And so imagine a bottle that you're constantly shaking, shaking. You've got gas that builds up in there. Well, imagine your body is that, right? You're constantly shaking that body and you're stressed all the time and you're shaking it and bubbles build up. Well, that's going to cause you problems. Mm -hmm. So you got to calm down the system and you got to take a step back. And that's why I think 
I'm a big pusher of meditation, yoga, oh, yes. breathing, exercises, eating the right foods, comfort foods, keeping a diary of things that improve you and mm -hmm. things that hurt you. Because really nutrition is key. So wow, is it okay. the future? Maybe. Wow. Okay. So talking about food, there was a study that came out um, that I'm just going to read off here. It says that plants and legumes are a lot better than beef products at reducing inflammation of the small and large intestine. So why is this? So I think a lot of beef is uh, not properly, you know, manipulated. Yeah. I think it was two years ago, the FDA stopped uh, the use of antibiotics in beef. So I think oh, really? that plays okay. a huge, huge role. And in fact, we still see kids that are just yesterday, I had a kid with C. diff and ulcerative colitis. Um, you know, and the, the common story was he had a hamburger and he had a piece of lamb that didn't look right. So you wonder if that beef was vaccinated and probably, you know, he's eating the vaccines with the meat. I mean, not, not vaccinated, I'm sorry, and got antibiotics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, you know, get vaccinated. My that's mind a, is vaccinated. <laughs> that's all right. Everywhere you go, you know, ten, every 10 minutes at Walmart, get vaccinated. So anyways, so um, what I was saying is the beef gets antibiotics yeah. and the, the beef, you know, having gets antibiotics and you're essentially eating the antibiotics of- And that's why you get with, sick. Yes. So that's, but, but legumes in general, you know, definitely, you know, there's some benefit to it. Uh, there's definitely a lot of good studies out there um, on legumes and vegetables. I, my personal feel for, you know, salads and everything, I like to make sure that I clean off everything and I like to make sure it doesn't have any pesticides because that's even worse for your gut. Here you are trying to eat a salad that's healthy. And in fact, it's full of pesticides and you're just aggravating your gut even worse. Wow. Okay. Um, so would you say the Mediterranean diet is the best diet at reducing inflammation in our guts? So I think the uh, Mediterranean diet is good for uh, people in the, you know, that are living in those areas. Uh, mm -hmm. I think it's not necessarily good for everybody. Okay. I think it's good for the Mexicans, you know, uh, because that's a different culture and a different exactly. microbiome there. I don't think it's good for Japanese. You know, they have a different culture. They're used to, you know, the rice and the Japanese food, uh, Chinese, vice versa. So I think, you know, every culture has a different microbiome and every culture has a different um, reception to, to foods. So I think to generalize, you know, we're definitely looking at that. We're looking mm -hmm. at Japanese in America versus Japanese in Japan, Chinese in China versus Chinese in, in China, um, to see what's different in their microbiome and to see what has changed and what causes disease. You know, we're certainly seeing a lot more autism in children in India and other countries. And so one wonders if maybe there's something in the food supply or mm. in the microbiome that gets transferred that causes that. So. That's um that's quite interesting that you actually said that because um there's this craze going around now I'm sure you've heard of it the carnivore diet it's everywhere I look there's a new carnivore cured uh, person I can see you shaking your head <laughs> um, I know 
Because it's like, we're all different. How could we possibly eat the same foods? Exactly. So fingerprints. How can we di- how can we eat the same foods? It just that's my question. Exactly. My and anytime somebody is is doing that, they're selling you something. It's marketing, right? They're selling you that, you know, the beef or the farm or you know, or the new probiotic or something. So I I just I feel like people know in their gut what they tolerate and what they don't tolerate. Yeah. I think you know, you know, if you're eating 10 donuts a day and you're, you've got a problem, then maybe the 10 donuts is not a good idea, right? We mm. know what causes us problems and indigestion. My favorite question is when people come to my office and they're like, every time I eat corn, I have to go to the bathroom and well, why are you eating the corn? Clearly, take it out. <laughs> take it out. It would have mm. saves your GI consult. Why even like go there? In my opinion, if you're drinking something or you're eating something that's affecting you, why do it? It's not essential to your life. So then why, like, I've got to be entirely upfront. I tried the carnivore diet for six weeks and then it just got to the point where my body could not handle anymore. So I just came straight off it. Um, But why is there this huge push towards a carnivore diet? I don't really understand it. And is it actually healthy for your body to just consume, uh, I don't know, pork and eggs and cheese and beef and whatever, really? Like, is it? I mean, if you want to have a heart attack and see my husband, the cardiologist, yeah, that's mm. probably the right way. But I mean, you know, I think I think it's a mis- it's a mistake to consume anything you know, in large amounts. And I think anything in moderation, yeah. um, you know, and I think your body knows when you've overdone it, your body knows when you're craving something and you're sick, um, you know, and this is, and we all know, right? We mm. know that if we're eating a whole pizza, we're going to gain weight. You don't need the book to tell you how to lose weight. You just know that if you're eating a whole pizza, calories in, calories out. I mean, that's, the, you know, that's the way it is. We all could write the book on weight loss. We all could write the book on nutrition. So we, I think ultimately we all know what's good for us because it is individual. You know, we all changed our diets. You know, we've all become, you know, diversified in our foods because we're exposed to certain foods that we weren't exposed as a kid. You know, I myself, I'm from the Mediterranean diet. So that was my exposure. And then I came to America from Canada and, you know, from uh, Europe and basically started eating foods that I wasn't used to. You know, I, I never had eaten Mexican food and I never had eaten sushi too much. And, you know, that didn't really settle. Of course, with time, you get adapted to that um, and, and changes. But of course, you know, there's a, you know, there's a variety of foods that certain people just can't tolerate and they just need to know that that's not the way they should go. If you start having symptoms from foods, um, then stop the behavior, you know, stop the food, stop the foods. I mean, you noticed Mm -hmm. it yourself when you ate, say I I did the same thing. I did ketogenic diet one time and I had, I ended up having keto. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I started having reflux because what did it do? It weakened my esophageal valve and then acid started building up and I started having horrendous reflux. So I was losing weight, 
but I was having reflux symptoms. I'm like, well, I don't want to kill my esophagus and then get esophageal cancer. So I better stop that ridiculousness because mm -hmm. people, in reality, I did lose the weight, but the problem is it didn't sustain the weight loss. Mm, and that's the key. So it's like, you know, you got to readjust your foods, readjust if it's a question of weight loss and, you know, everything we put in has consequences. That is so true. So I'm um, speaking about ketogenic diet. So again, from what you said before, you think that it's not one size fits everybody. And do you think that a keto diet can, because there are heaps of people out there that claim that keto can cure irritable bowel syndrome, uh, PSOS, insulin resistance. But from, from what I'm kind of hearing, that isn't the case. So if that was the solution, every doctor would be recommending it for every single patient. Yep. Every patient, you know, that has a problem has tried those, right? So the fact that it's not universal tells you exactly what I've been saying from the beginning. We're yep. all different. We're all if different. we're different, how can we possibly use the same pill or the same diet? And so for those people who it's working, great for them. That worked. But for the, for the rest, and they tried it and it didn't work, then, you know, stay off that train. Okay. Get off that train is what I'm going to say. <laughs> Get off it. Quick. Um, which foods should we be avoiding? Gluten, processed sugars? So, you know, the I'm, corn is probably my least favorite food. Corn. There's no benefit of corn whatsoever. Um, you know, that's, that's the main... Uh, food that I'm not a fan of. Everything else really in moderation. Yeah, yes, processed sugars, processed meat, not a good thing. Processed cheese, all these, you know, uh, foods with tons of, um, of, uh, of uh, you know, additives and everything. Yep. That's not really good. And sugar and, and also color, color foods, colored foods, not a, not a good thing. Also, if you're going to buy foods, uh, make sure that it's foods that you know where the farm is, it, where it's coming from. Mm -hmm. A lot of times we think organic and then you turn in the back of the, the bag and you see made in Taiwan or Thailand mm -hmm. and you go, well, I don't know if that's organic. I haven't really seen the farm where it's at, right? So I think that's, there's a lot of deception in the food industry where we think something is organic and good for us and it's actually not you look at the salmon for example um and you see these salmon that are like from the farm where there's a thousand fish swimming together and you can imagine they're swimming in their microbiome not to be graphic and but if you look at that piece of salmon it's extremely red it looks amazing but actually you know it's got a lot more fat and a lot of, of color additives. So that's not something I would, you know, I prefer the, the salmon from deep ocean because yep. then, you know, it's, it's wild, etc. So I think on the whole, that's my, my impression. I like impression. You know, where my food comes from, my farm. There's a huge movement right now in, on social media. I don't know if you saw of people gardening at home. There's like I a lot. <laughs> I love that. Everybody is now. Everyone is. Yeah, it's amazing. That's the way it should be because it's like, first of all, you get to play with the dirt, which is great for your microbiome because you're bringing in microbes that you're playing with. You know, you're one with nature. 
And then secondly, you know what you put in. You know there's no preservatives. There's, you know there's no toxins. There's no pesticides because they're grown in your house, under your roof, and you know what you put in. And it's a different taste. Yeah, you know strawberries that you buy at the grocery store and the strawberries you buy, you, you plant are completely different. The tomatoes are amazing when you grow them at home versus the ones you buy in the grocery store. Every time I taste a strawberry or a tomato, I know it's been manipulated somehow because it doesn't taste what a tomato or a strawberry tastes like. Should taste I'm like all wow. for that movement. Wow, okay. So which foods and also supplements should we be consuming um, just to improve our microbiome as a whole? So the first thing I'm going to say is vitamin D. Okay. I'm a huge proponent of vitamin D. You know, vitamin D has shown to improve, uh, to actually um, uh, prevent or not prevent, but at least to help with colon cancer. So, you know, we see a lot of, uh, you know, colon cancer with vitamin D deficiency. So definitely vitamin D is a plus. I, I give it to all my inflammatory bowel disease patients. I give it to all my patients in general. I'm very big on, on supplementing the vitamin D. Um, you know, making sure you have a multivitamins. If you're over a certain age, well, you need to supplement your calcium and your magnesium. So, you know, the nutrient, the vitamins are very important. Again, with the vitamins, you got to make sure that they're coming from the right place and mm -hmm. that they're proper vitamins and that they've been tested. And, you know, I'm trying to push the movement of, of, you know, FDA kind of overlooking the vitamins because too often we're, do, we're seeing these vitamins over the counters and they're actually either contaminated or they have stuff that's not um, that shouldn't be in there. You know, you look at vitamin C and then you ask yourself, is it really the pure vitamin C or is there other stuff that was contaminated in there? And so, you know, making sure the right companies and the right supervision and that it's a GMP company, et cetera, that's developing that. So I think that's one, two, you know, probiotics, um, in general probiotics, I like things that are in yogurt, mm -hmm. uh, natural foods. I'm not a pill person because I don't know if the probiotics that are in the pill, first of all, are the real probiotics, the real bacteria, the real microbes, or is it uh, dead bacteria, you know, that gets into your colon, it's dead. What does a dead bacteria do to a live colon? That's the main question. So, you know, be asking the questions. And again, if you're taking a probiotic and you're feeling gassy or not feeling well, you know, that's not for you. So just stop it. Mm -hmm. So you can do, you know, anything as a test trial is not going to hurt you, but things chronically being used that are wrong for you and don't sit properly yep. is not a good thing. I see. Okay. So vitamin D, um, what about vitamin C? Vitamin is that important? C, you got to be careful for people that have like kidney problems yep. because they can end up having, you know, kidney, especially people that have renal failure is not a good idea to over supplement. Mm -hmm. um, vitamin C, also gastritis patients, you know, they're, it's too sensitive for them. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to do a vitamin C, make sure, you know, it's it, the coated vitamin C, yep. um, just to make sure that it absorbs properly and that not too much, but that's one. In a time of COVID, I like to push zinc. 
because zinc, that's right yep yeah zinc so uh because it blocks you know the the entrance of the virus and in general any virus but of course don't overdo it 25 milligrams uh, you know is enough uh because anytime you give too much of something you lose something so if you overdo it with zinc you're going to lose your copper and then you need your copper so you got to keep the balance going with these uh vitamins supplements I understand. Okay. Um, my last question is what advice do you have for people who have been told that they have irritable bowel syndrome? And, and as you were talking before, it can be anything. It can be from like this to that. And they've been suffering for five to 10 years. Um, what should they be potentially looking at? So the first thing is making sure they have a complete workup that is sure. Okay, blood work. Well, blood work, you know, uh, an evaluation by GI doctor, if they're primary care doctor, if they're still suffering, and it depends, right? Irritable bowel syndrome is irritable bowel syndrome, abdominal pain, irritable bowel syndrome, diarrhea, irritable bowel syndrome, gas, or irritable bowel syndrome, constipation. So what array of, what symptoms are they having? If they're not getting better and the primary cares, you know, haven't helped them, then it's time to see a GI doctor to make sure this is what we're talking about, you know, certainly a, a good workup is important. Okay. Um, and then, you know, doing a diary. I think the best thing that has helped me, and I always tell my patients, keep a diary for me. Give me the time that you ate, what food you ate, and when your symptoms occurred. Mm -hmm. Because the digestive tract is very simple. It starts in the mouth, it ends up in the rectum. At any point where the food gets lodged is the problem. Mm -hmm. So if your food is stuck in the stomach somewhere, then you potentially have an idea of what's going on, right? Yeah. If, you're, if you're having problems, you know, in the left upper quadrant, you know what uh, and what time you ate the food at, mm. you know what food is the culprit. So I think my best thing that has helped me over the years is a diary that patients have kept with symptoms. And then it tells the story. You know, I'll give you an example. And the reason I'm like not a fan of corn you know, so many of my patients or lentils, sometimes patients will come in and they'll write the, their diaries. And inevitably you see, they had at two o'clock in the afternoon, they had corn at seven o'clock at night, they're having GI problems. Yeah, and it's symptoms. always, you know, so it's always something like, like that. And so essentially I say, well, there's your culprit, you circle it. So That's I think fine. people can just, you know, do a simple diary themselves and, and find the similarities of the food that is affecting them. So a and food then, diary. Uh, food diary, very important. The second thing that's very important is making sure you have enough fiber, right, in your diet. So if you're not having the fiber from foods, and, you know, I wrote the book, I don't know if you know, uh, with the bad title, Let's Talk S-H-I-T. And I've so, seen that briefly. Yeah, so in there, I put some di some diets because... You know, one of my topic is gas price. One of my chapters is gas prices because people complain <laughs> of gas, right? Mm -hmm. And so I gave a couple of examples of, of foods that you could eat and recipes that you can eat in there because, you know, clearly, even though we're all different, there's certain things that do cause people that are sensitive problems. And so it's important to know. So where can we actually find this book? Amazon.com. Progenobiome, so www.progenobiome.com. Okay, um, I think I've got like 20 more questions, but time has caught up. So I really want to thank you so much for sure. coming on and enjoy the 
I think it's evening there, right? Okay, yes. Yep. Bye. Bye.